When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Erin Kinsley. Her new novel is Innocent. It's all about a local celebrity found dead in a close-knit community. Now, her debut, uh, Found, was published to huge acclaim last year. Uh, Now, we talk about why every adjective has to earn its keep, which is quite niche. I love the fact that we're that niche straight away. Also, she explains why, if you feel like you should write a very specific book, then it's that project that needs to leap to the front of the queue. And also, you can hear why she doesn't, on the surface, plot too much because it seems really that a subconscious takes care of most of that. I was describing a, a little cabin and I, in the opening scenes I put a shotgun in this cabin and uh, I had no idea why I'd, why I'd done that. And then way down the line, as I was getting to the closing scenes, it became crystal clear why that shotgun was there and it was very much needed. But this was three or four months down the line. But I had subconsciously put that shotgun in there so that somebody down the line could pick it up. So I think your subconscious is always a lot smarter than you are, actually. Also, uh, it's a very special bumper episode this week. Towards the end, you can hear about a fantastic writing magazine. It's ri- It's been written by someone who actually knows what readers want to know about books which is always quite a head start, I think. We'll learn more about that in a bit. It's on the way with Erin Kinsley in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, hello. Welcome along to Writer's Routine. This is the show that takes a look at how writers work, uh, how they organise their time, their ideas and their plot uh, to get that book done, to get it published, to get it out into the world. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you are listening through Apple Podcasts, by the way, uh, you can do us a favour, could you? Just spare a second. Leave us a review uh, if you've not done that already, I promise. It's so quick and it will really help others find us, which I think is a win all round. Now, this week, we're chatting to Erin Kinsley all about her new novel, Innocent. Her debut, Found, was published last year at a huge success in praise. And you can hear about the slightly harrowing idea for what led to that story, but why when she had it, Erin had to get it out there. Now, Erin has has just published her second book, the one she's here to talk about, Found. It's her second book under that name, Erin Kinsley. She's written many more under another name. Uh, I won't tell you what it is. That's our little secret. I will say that she they're, they're all Greek mystery stories. To be honest, if you want to do a little bit of digging on that, I'm sure you'll find it fairly quickly. Uh, We talk with Erin all about the discipline of writing, the form that her planning takes between diagrams and charts, the targets that she sets herself, how her work changes in the morning and in the evening, uh, and why sometimes she works in pen and other times on the keyboard. Also, remember, I mentioned it a second ago, uh, it is really worth you sticking around to the end of this podcast uh, because we're chatting to Ed Needham, who is the editor of the amazing Strong Words magazine. I mean, if you love your books, and I mean, I guess you do love your books, that's why you're listening to this show. Uh, If that's you, really do stay to the end um, to hear more from Ed about the fantastic magazine. Before we get there... We need to get into it with Erin Kinsley, though, and talk about what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Uh, uh, Well, these days I tend to write, believe it or not, uh, either in my old caravan, 
um, which is not very scenic, but has seen me through through two books, and I have a view of open fields from there. But when it gets too cold, um, I, I tend to write in the bedroom, actually, where it's snugly and warm. I go and sit upstairs on the bed. I'm always fascinated by writers who, who change up, who write in different places. Why are you... Why is your starting point the the caravan as opposed to the the snuggly warmth of the bedroom all the time? Um, because it feels like I'm entering the writing zone if I go out there, and it's a, to be honest, it's a bit easier to focus and kind of um, knuckle down to it. I feel like I'm going to my office. It's it's not much of an office. It's uh, it's not it's not very glam, but I've got a kettle in there. I've got the essentials. I've got my my tea and my kettle and, uh, and a bottle of milk. Uh, I try not to take the biscuit tin with me. You know that's uh, that's bad news taking the biscuit tin. But it feels um, I feel in that small space. I feel very cocooned in there. And I think that's why I think a number of writers do write in sheds and places like that. There's something kind of womb-like about it, actually. You're just really uh, entering the zone when you go in there. Kind of being locked away with your ideas. Yeah, very much so. And uh, there's there's not very much going on. We're at the end of a, a very quiet lane here, so there's very few distractions. There's um, you know there's the bird life which I like to watch um, if I if I get distracted, but there aren't very many distractions. The other thing I don't have in the caravan is that I don't have Wi-Fi. And that is a definite plus for productivity because, you know, everybody knows the worst distraction in the world is is the Internet. The caravan doesn't have that. So if I go out there, I'm really, really cocooned from the world. Well, what does the caravan have in terms of storytelling? I mean, if I were to walk in, would I have any clue as to the story that you are writing? Uh, I, I think you probably wouldn't, actually. I have my bookshelves in there and I have hundreds of notebooks um, that's got notes from all kinds of things that I've written over the years. You know, great big stacks. I'm, I'm a bit of a bit of a sucker for for pretty notebooks. You know, for, you know, paper chase and places like that. Absolute magnets for me. And I have my fancy pens. I have to have the right pen to write. And I'm also fond of writing um, with a, with a fountain pen, with uh, good old fashioned bottles of inks. So I've got lots of bottles of different colored inks in there but you wouldn't know what I was writing I do have I do tend to use um, a great big you know like a draftsman's um, pad of paper for doing diagrammatically where I'm going with the plot especially when I get a bit further on because it's very easy to lose track of progress I need to remember who said what to who when Um, so you would see you might see you might see a plan stuck on the wall uh, but apart from that, no, I don't think you would have any idea actually what I was writing. It's amazing. Isn't it? I've done I've done quite a few of these chats now, and I've trained my brain to pick up on the stuff that I really need to pick apart. And there was so much in that uh, <laughs> writing with fountain pens. Does that mean you're 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 writing the whole time in longhand? Uh, I like to do my first drafts in longhand because I think there is a different connection. Uh, between the creative brain and the hand than there is to the between the creative brain and the keyboard and I definitely write I think more interesting stuff when I'm writing with a pen in my hand and then when I when I've um, written the longhand version in one of my notebooks in there's loads of crossings out in theirs and um, revisions and a lot of it is just kind of stream of consciousness stuff actually um, then my first edit is to go and key that in to the laptop and then I work on from there. But that's a way that, that works for me. It's worked for me for many years. Have you ever tried to write uh, your first draft on a computer? Do you know what? Um, yes, I have. And actually found my my first Erin Kinsley book, which has been a huge success. Interestingly, I did write that straight to the laptop. Now, what does that tell you about my writing style, actually? Perhaps perhaps what I've just said about... Uh, this was only the last book, wasn't it? As in, so you're, you're on your second novel, right? Uh, I'm on, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, as my second Erin Kinsley novel. Not my, not my second novel, but my second Erin Kinsley novel. But that's interesting. So, <laughs> like, I don't want to give too much away because you write under a pseudonym, so we're going to focus on that. But, right, I'm just trying to get the timeline correctly in my head. So you, uh, your debut Erin Kinsley novel... Uh, this was found. You wrote that on the laptop, uh, but then you went back to write, and that was a, a huge success. And then you went back to writing longhand for the the second Erin Kinsley novel. Yeah, uh, do you know, I think there's a reason for that. The found was a book that I had wanted to write for at least five, maybe more years. 
And I was absolutely bursting to write it and had never found the time. And I think when I came to sit down and write it, it was just like it just came pouring out and it wouldn't have been fast enough to write with my hand. I, I wrote it in two months, believe it or not, and that is the fastest by a long, long shot that I have ever written a book. And it and it came out almost perfectly formed on the laptop. So that but but it had this massively long gestation period where I was just thinking I really should write that book. I really should write that book. And here's a message to everybody. If you're feeling like that about a book or a piece of writing, you really should write that book and you really should put it to the front of your queue. It was the premise of it. I, I it was inspired a long time ago by um the Madeleine McCann case because what I couldn't help thinking about that case was what would happen if she was found? What kind of a state would she come back in, you know, and could, could she ever have a normal life? And, and to be frank, would she be better off dead, which is a terrible thing to say, but, you know, how damaged would a child be under those, you know, assuming she'd been uh, grabbed by paedophiles or whatever, how, what, how bad, badly damaged would she be? And could a recovery be made? And that was the premise of, of found, you know, that with the right people, perhaps there is a possibility of some kind of normality. So that that was the inspiration for that book. And then you reverted back to writing longhand. I, I love the fact. So you said that you wrote that very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh how did you how did you kind of plan the writing of that? Was it at such a point by the time you got it out that you could almost just sit there and uh, a stream of consciousness? I just basically went and sat in the caravan on a daily basis and it just just sat and typed it and it and it it seemed like I did have those those charts and then when I was revising it, you know, my my graphs and whatever where it was where it was going, where the action was going, what the characters were doing. But uh, my intervention in that really wasn't that much required. I mean, I, like I say, I, that was definitely the result of so much subconscious activity, I think, going on uh, in the in the previous years that it just it just ended up, you know, pretty much perfectly formed. Never had that before. Probably never going to have it again. But it was a fantastic experience while it happened. You speak of these diagrams and charts that you make. What form do they actually take? Uh, is, would it be understandable to someone like me who who can't see inside your brain if I opened up the notebook? Could I get a handle on what you are kind of figuring out here or is it almost incomprehensible it's this random shape that only makes sense to you I think you'd I think you'd make sense of it I'm big on colors you know my colored inks and whatever I think that's that's the creative part of my brain so I tend to divide whatever book I'm writing and this is true of uh, certainly true of innocent I divide my work into strands I think my books um, they tend to have a, a major plot and a subplot and sometimes I write those separately and then weave them back in together and sometimes I write them side by side but with Innocent um, I wrote them side by side and and color-coded the different strands that were running through the novel Uh, you know a red strand and a blue strand for the police which seems a kind of obvious one and a green strand for um, this character's uh, line and whatever uh, and it draw a chart of boxes, you know, with the action and but um, coloured to the to the character that that the uh, that that particular action is showing. So it looks like a, a bit of a rainbow mess, really. It's a bit like a Jackson Pollock painting with little boxes, I suppose. Um, but it, it, you, yeah, you could figure it out. I think there's an awful lot of arrows on those things. You know, this arrow leading here, and a lot of crossed arrows. Um, and a lot of crossings out and a lot of movings about. And I think um, that's the problem when you're writing a novel. It's an immensely complex undertaking. You know, when you write the first chapter, you think you know where you're going and it all seems fairly straightforward. Um, And then thoughts come in and you think, oh, but it actually would be quite good if so-and-so happened but you might have to backtrack to put the lead into that piece of action. You might have to go back right to the beginning or to a third of the way through, plug all that in. And I found that doing it, doing the novel diagrammatically, having a piece of paper to to visualise it on one on one sheet of paper, I think that's the crucial thing for me is that I need to see it on one sheet of paper. But it does become a very messy piece of paper by the time I finish the book. 
Now, the show is writer's routine, Aaron. So, so talk me through yours. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sat down to write in the caravan, uh, how does it look? Uh, well, I tend to get up pretty early. I'm usually up by six and in summer, I'm sometimes up by by five, actually. Um, if it's a lovely summer's morning, my winter and my summer routine are very different. If it's winter, uh, I'm really not keen to get out of bed, I have to say. Um, I might stay in bed and read um for an hour even two hours and I drink lots of tea I mean just assume throughout my day there is tea because I'm a a terrible tea addict Um, but uh, there's dogs to be walked and we have a few chickens so my priorities are the animals actually Um, the dogs walk the dogs feed the chickens and then probably start work go out to the caravan at about eight o'clock and early morning I like to do new writing. I'm definitely a a morning person. My other half is the most terrible night owl, and sometimes I kind of feel like, especially in summer, we cross. He's just about going to bed while I'm getting up. But um, I'm definitely a morning person, creativity-wise, and I tend to write new writing, you know, fresh fresh words um, first thing in the morning. And I'll probably work till about 1 o'clock out in the caravan, with my with my notebooks and then is that is that working straight so five hours cracking it right through um i would like to say that was the case but if i'm honest um i would say uh possibly not there might be um the odd break you know i, th- I think you can get you can get completely stifled if, if i'm immersed in something yes but usually um i might might come in and make a phone call or you know i'm, I'm not set in there set in stone for the whole morning usually but uh, as soon as I leave the caravan in that time period I do feel guilty so I know I should be writing so I do tend to get myself back in there fairly quickly um, then there's a break for lunch at about one o'clock and then from about two o'clock till about four o'clock I work on edits because I've still got a fair amount of um, brain power going on until about four o'clock um, and, and I'll work on edits I might work through what I've written that morning or I might um, be working through a different manuscript entirely or, um, you know, doing blog posts or whatever. But I, I, so I do non, non-new writing, what I call non-new writing in the afternoons. And then four o'clock, I'm pretty much done for the day, to be honest. How good are you at switching off at four o'clock? You've spent a, bit, a, considerable, a considerable amount of time on your work. Uh, are, you, uh, how, are you good at just saying, that's it, I'll come back to you tomorrow at eight? Do you know, I am really poor at switching off ever when I am writing a book because I think it's always with you. You've got to carry it with you and the house is littered with bits of paper with little scribbled notes and I might have thought of a you know a good a good turn of phrase or something that should happen in the action and I tend to say I have my best ideas really when I'm doing the most mundane tasks when I'm not actually writing. I think peeling potatoes is a great time to have good ideas and doing the washing up or driving, you know, I te- when I'm driving, I never have music on in the car because I think there's something about the the the, the two levels of your brain. I talk about a lot a lot about the creative brain, I know, but I think the levels of the brain are are quite important. So when you're driving, it's kind of a mindless task, and that frees up your subconscious to be turning things over. The same as when you do, you know, when you're doing ironing or any of those tasks. And I, quite often when I'm doing that, I will solve a difficult plot point or think that's what needs to happen next and then I'll be running off again to the notebooks and might spend another 20-30 minutes writing again so I'm, I feel I'm never free of it in some ways it feels quite a burden to be honest even you know, even when I'm sitting down in the evening should be relaxing I might think oh do you know it, I must write that down because if I don't write it down it'll go you know, I'm kind of at that age now where I can't expect to hold on to ideas forever. I always sleep with a notebook by the bed because sometimes I wake up with brilliant ideas. And I just think if you don't if you don't get them down in the moment, you lose them forever. In, in that five hours of quite concentrated new writing time that you have, uh, is there a goal for how much you'd like to get done? Do you know what you're going to write that day when you sit down in the morning? Uh, I, I will not allow myself to stop until I've done at least a thousand words. Uh, mostly I'll do more than that. I can These days I can usually do at least 2,000, sometimes even more than that if I'm on a roll. Sometimes it's really difficult and I'm just not in the mood. 
Uh, and then the thousand words can be, you know, they can be very hard and actually they're not very good. They're not even really usable. But there is definitely an element of discipline. Discipline is absolutely paramount in in writing you've got to show up I think on pretty much a daily basis I do give myself weekends off usually um, with the proviso I've just said that you know notebooks lying around the house and so on but you have got to be disciplined you've got to be there and you've got to do your your daily words no matter what time of time of day you do that when I was um when my son was um very young I used to set my alarm for four in the morning to get up and have a couple of hours writing time just to make sure that those words get done so I have been always been a very disciplined person and that stays with me to this day so I never I never stop unless I've crossed the 1000 pound 1000 word barrier a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Very quickly, before we get back to it with Erin, uh, I want to remind you, if you are enjoying the show uh, and, the wide range of authors, or, and the wide range of authors that we're giving you, uh, please do support us over at Patreon. It doesn't take a lot either. Just a dollar or so a month really helps us out. It helps us keep bringing you chats with the best authors that we can find as often as we can. Now, by doing that, you can get little bits of merch. You can also get your book to sponsor this show so you get to listen in the, in the warm safe knowledge uh, that you're supporting the show that you love i don't know if it is warm safe knowledge but i mean it's warm and safe for me it really helps me out uh, thanks to everyone that has done that on patreon by the way uh, if you are waiting for merch you should have it by now uh, little bits of merch went all over the all over the world last week i mean i stood in the line at the post office for ages sending stuff to america and australia and the uae uh, if you have stuff put my mind at ease would you uh, just send a little message to the contact page over at um, writersroutine.com uh, and if you want to be on the list of people I'm sending things to in the long line at the post office help us out send what you can support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine remember we are chatting to uh, Ed Needham the editor of the brilliant strong words magazine in a little bit uh, before we get to that let's get back to it with Erin Kinsley talking about her new novel Innocent it's the story of a close-knit community that is torn apart when a celebrity is found murdered. Now, the celeb that she based it on uh, is Nikki Campbell. If that doesn't mean anything to you, if you're not sure who Nikki is, uh, he is a radio presenter uh, from over here in the UK. He used to be on Radio 1, now he's on Radio 5 Live. He also does uh, ethical debate shows on the telly on a, on a, on a Sunday morning. Uh, and and I mean, nothing against him, please. Nicky's a very nice chap. But for some reason, the idea of his death inspired Erin to write a new book. Um, and you can hear why Erin thought about that in a little bit. Also, you can find out why she compares editing to knitting. Uh, and we pick things up talking about the discipline of storytelling. Sitting down every day to write. How long did it take to figure out how she works best? 
I think a number of years, actually. I, I, you know, I've, I've had quite a long writing career, and my in the beginning, I was dabbling. I think that, but that's where everybody starts. You know, you, you do start dabbling. I think it's it's people can expect too much of themselves too soon. I think, and I think I expected too much of myself too soon, probably. Um, but I started with short stories, and there isn't as much discipline in a short story, obviously, because of the the word count. You know. Um, but that's where I started, and and I would just wait for it to have an idea. And sometimes I'd wait weeks to have an idea, um, and, and the ideas would be okay, you know. And I'd produce these stories. And um, when I started to to write my first novel, um, I think then the the it's, it's a marathon, isn't it, rather than a, a sprint? Then, and I think fear. Um, becomes inspiring them because you think well I want to do this and I want to do this before a certain age you know you set yourself goals don't you and um, you just do the maths and you think well if I need 80 or 100,000 words if I only write 200 words a day that's going to take me an awful long time to do and I think it was being quite a logical person on one level that I thought if I'm going to produce 80,000 words and I want to do it this year which I think I think my original goal was to write a novel in a year then really I need to have these targets and I think I set them I set myself targets quite early on and I've just always stuck to that because you're quite disciplined and you want to get at least a thousand words down a day and we we spoke about your your charts and your diagrams and your your planning earlier on uh, how good are you at the the planning and the plotting stage of writing a novel when you sit down there at eight o'clock in the morning do you know exactly what you need to get through (laughs) no because I'm one of those um immensely brave people who I rarely write to a synopsis very rarely I write I start with an idea I have written an entire novel based on a title actually um but I I I I think synopses have their place I think uh but I think they can be constraining because once you get involved with your characters inevitably anyone would say this they're going to go off in in directions that you weren't expecting and if you keep trying to pull them back to the plot line you could lose something very precious doing that. And I think um, you've got to have a level of trust in yourself and your subconscious. And I do think, I have to say, I do think that's something that comes with with practice and experience. I don't think I would have said that um, when I was 21. I'm sure I wouldn't have said that. But I think um, as you gain more experience, uh, you gain the ability to trust yourself and to know that it will work out fine. And even if you take a small wrong turn, that you can come back from that. You know, there's you, you, any any book you're writing, you're going to throw away thousands upon thousands of words. I never throw mine away, actually. I keep them in Word files on the laptop and in my famous notebooks, you know. and um, Nothing is ever wasted, but... I'm never too rigid. I might have a, you know, an idea where I'm hoping to go with a with a plot, but it might go somewhere entirely different. And if that happens, it's usually a better place. So if you don't start out with a synopsis, what what do you start out with? If you were to, if sometimes on the show, uh, writers will describe their plot to me like a like a road map. So they might know, well, they know where they're starting from. They might know where they're going, uh, and uh, maybe a few. Um, service stations along the way how does it work for you well if we if we go for a look at found because i think that's probably the easiest example i had that key idea you know the idea of a child who is snatched and then returned so i had an obvious place to start with what was which was with the snatch itself and that naturally led into um the you know the distress of the family and that naturally led into the police arriving and taking charge of the uh, investigation. And I, I knew that I was vaguely aiming towards the child be, being returned. So there's the first third of the book, really, pretty straightforward. What I didn't have after that was what was going to happen next. And um, I'd already written in um, a grandfather character in, in the opening scenes when the um, when the parents discover that the child is missing and the, the father calls his grandfather. And it was that character who began to talk to me at that point. But there's another example. The book I'm writing now, the, um, 
Hidden, which is uh, the third Erin Kinsley book. Um, I've, I've got a, an idea for that uh, to the two sisters uh, and a police investigation and, uh, you know, uh, um, an overhanging, an overarching idea for that. Interestingly, the sisters have temporarily stopped talking to me. I don't know whether it was something I said or wrote or whatever. So I've now moved on to the police procedural aspect of it. And and that is leading me forward. And every morning when I turn up in the caravan, I have a new idea for that. So that's what I'm working on. I'm not forcing the sisters to come out of hiding. They'll come out in, in their own good time. And it just comes down to trust and these developing new ideas. So every morning when I go and sit in the caravan, I tend to think, oh, okay, this is what should happen next. And, it, and that is what should happen next. And that's what happens. I had an image of a perfect idyllic country wedding. That was, that was my first idea. And I thought, what if somebody, something went horribly wrong at your wedding? You know, cause we all love a good wedding, don't we? And I had this image of this small town, this lovely small town. I used to live in a small town and, um, I kind of miss it, but it was a place that was, um, full of gossip and secrets and all kinds of undercurrents that were going on there. It was intriguing, really, you know, in the kind of Miss Marple way. Uh, Miss Marple always said that all human life is there in St. Mary Mead in that tiny village. And that was certainly true of the of the town that I lived in. Um, so I was very drawn. I had this picture of, of the perfect um, country village and a perfect country wedding. And somebody, um, somebody being murdered there with with a bottle of champagne because I thought, you know, what's what's the ultimate weapon if you're at a wedding? Somebody gets hit over the head with a bottle of champagne, which sounds like kind of a cliche. I hope it's it's not cliched. You know, it's not cozy crime or or whatever. And uh, I had the idea of the character who was going to come to a bad end, and it was. Um, uh, a TV presenter, and I was thinking actually, the TV presenter I had in mind. I hope this is, uh, is Nikki Campbell. Sorry, Nikki, you know if you ever listen to this, but but I had. Yeah, this, I actually saw Nikki Campbell earlier today. Really, is that true? Cool. They, yeah, yeah. yeah. At, at, my, at my other job, I didn't say hello to him, but at my other job, I kind of ran. Well, into Well, there's him. a that synchronicity. There you go. But it was Nikki Campbell that I was thinking of, and in 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 innocent, it's kind of the Nikki Campbell character who gets hit over the head. So then, so I've got my opening scene for that, but the question is, the, the big question always is who done it? And then I had a range of characters that I was thinking of, an ex-policeman and various others, and I thought, um, I really wasn't sure when I started out who was going to have done it and motives, but um, as the book evolved, um, the motive became clear and, and the, um, you know, the killer became clear. And it, and it evolved in that same kind of organic way. So then what needs, I know that we, we've kind of touched upon this, but what needs to happen next before you start with your fountain pen getting down that very first sentence? Well, what needs to happen next? I, I just think you just got to kind of get in, in the zone. I think if it's, it's I, for me, the process is, is very goal oriented. I think, um, you know, it's, it's easy to let time slip away. And I think it's, it's just focusing and um, getting out of your own way and just, and just being there and getting the words down on paper. That's, that's all I can say about the, that, that part of the process really. But, you know, as I said, it's, it's all happening all the time. It's your, your brain is always working no matter whatever, whatever I'm doing, my brain is always working, always developing new ideas, new characters, um, new ways of description. What happens further down the line? Because when when you're working like that, I think um, the words, frankly, are um, are quite rough. Um, you know, my first drafts. You would not want to read my first drafts, and I think that's something else that I've learned: not to be afraid of a first draft that you wouldn't dare show to anybody because you know the the language is awful. It's you know it's a bit of a mess, repeated, and um, it, it doesn't hang together properly. But I think um the the biggest pleasure in it all for me comes when you're going through when you've got a, a very rough first draft and you then are going through it pulling it all together straightening it out it's kind of like um it's almost like making a quilt really to me you know when you end, you start with all the pieces don't you have a quilt and you start stitching a pin you pin them together first and then you stitch them together and gradually something um 
something worthwhile begins to emerge. And that to me is the is going through the editing process. You know, you first edit and you think, well, okay, this is getting close to something I could show an editor. Um, I, I would do loads of edits. I mean, my, I'd probably do 10 or 15 full edits on, on a, one of my books. It's just got to be perfect. But it's a lot. What are you changing between, sorry to interrupt, what are you changing between, say, the 12th and the 13th edit? I'm usually working on the language, on the way my sentences are constructed, on the adjectives that I've used. Um, just very nitty gritty on the descriptions. I I don't tend to do a lot of description, but for that reason, because I think it slows it down, and I like to keep um, the books quite pacey. But that means when you're picking an adjective, it's really got to earn its keep. And I think choosing those words, the perfect word, that is a very time consuming thing to do. And when I'm in the in full edit mode, it can take me a full day. Um, just to do three pages. I mean, that's the kind of level that I'm working at then. So it's a very different process to what happens in the beginning when it's very speedy, you know, a thousand words a day. Uh, it's very much slowed down when I get into the full editing process. And then it's very, very slow. And actually it drives me nuts because it can take, you know, it might take me two, like it took me two months, two or three months to write found. And then it probably took me twice as long as that to, to edit it and get it into publishable format. Lastly. This might be quite um quite a, like a strangely philosophical one. I'm just thinking about you. You have this idea for a local celebrity that is murdered with a champagne bottle, um, a picture perfect wedding in a picture perfect uh, community. Do you think somewhere you always know who has done it, and you always know why they've done it? I know that you don't plot and you kind of write as you go on. You're a proper pantser. Do, are you? Is is it there somewhere in your kind of brushing the dirt off the hieroglyphics or are you actually constructing this as you go along i know that sounds a bit waffly but i know no i know exactly what you mean and i think that's an excellent point because i think on a subconscious level yes i do always know how it's done and I, i can reference that by a book i wrote under a different name when in the opening scenes um, I was describing a, a little cabin and I, in the opening scenes, I put a shotgun in this cabin and uh, I had no idea why I'd, why I'd done that. And then way down the line, as I was getting to the closing scenes, it became crystal clear why that shotgun was there and it was very much needed. But this was three or four months down the line. But I had subconsciously put that shotgun in there so that somebody down the line could pick it up. So I think your subconscious is always a lot smarter than you are, actually. And that is it for our chat with Erin Kinsley this week. Thank you so much to her for coming on the show, for telling us how she wrote her brand new book, Innocent. If you fancy grabbing a copy... Uh, please use the link that is in the podcast notes over at writersroutine.com. And don't go anywhere. I know that's usually the point that you switch off, but please don't go anywhere. Now, uh, a little bonus addition to the show, talking about the brilliant writing magazine, Strong Words. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not getting anything out of this. Uh, th- there is kind of talk that I'm going to go in there as well, but uh, it's not a plug, a proper plug. I'm, I've not been sponsored to do it. I was just uh, sent a copy of the magazine and I loved it. So I got the editor on the show. It's so beautifully and lovingly put together. It's got interviews in there. It's got reviews, articles, editorials. Strong Words is a writing magazine, I think, that as a reader actually works for you. Now, the whole thing is put together by Ed Needham, uh, who is an old hand in the magazine business. Uh, And and we caught up the other day. We had a chat online uh, all about Strong Words. And he started off by telling me, rather generally, what it is. It's a magazine about books for people who buy books for pleasure. So the the intention is that, I mean, I love uh, buying books. I love reading books. And, uh, and I also quite enjoyed reading book reviews. And it kind of struck me after, you know, reading book reviews that uh, I wasn't really being given enough of a sense of just how many books there were. I wasn't getting enough of a sense of whether this book was for me. And too many reviewers, I felt, were either sort of grandstanding a little bit and showing how they like to display sort of greater knowledge of the, than the author by pointing out sort of tiny 
nitpicking little faults or um or often reviewers got into it you know adopted a sort of uh, academic tone that um you know obviously you know plenty of books uh, plenty of journals and the like that are written for uh, academics and intellectuals and people who take a very highbrow approach to to literature and books but for most people that just goes completely over their heads and so i wanted uh, strong words to be about books but not making books sound like homework that's a brilliant intention but i'd imagine that's quite hard to do a lot of the time when you are reviewing books when you're reading so many then trying to make your review utterly accessible to everyone and i mean i mean it is quite a high concept magazine so uh, it's not like you've not properly dumbed things down but you have made things accessible uh, how do you go about doing that without falling into the trap as you've said that so many critics do fall into and get into intellectual well i really want the the reviews themselves to be a pleasure to read you know they, they shouldn't be like a, a, a steep climb and uh I, so i take a fairly sort of journalistic approach to it and by that i mean you know you you have to you know each sentence has to kind of earn its corn you know to to make sure that people go on to the next sentence you know otherwise it's very easy for people to drift away you know um so i i try and make them as sort of uh, lively and punchy as possible i try and drag out the you know some of the interesting details from the from the books um uh, quotes that you know really log in people's register in people's minds and uh try and make it uh try and be as enthusiastic as i can you know rather than taking this sort of uh i'm now going to settle back in a, a dusty armchair and steeple my fingers and tell me why you should or shouldn't read this book tell me about the very first idea then that the moment that the idea for strong words came to you i mean we, we've we kind of have been around the houses with it earlier on but like what was the the very spark of an idea that light bulb moment that you thought oh, okay yeah i'm gonna give this a go well, look, I mean, I've, I've worked in magazines all my life and uh, and it's the only th- I don't know how to do anything else. You know, I'm a journalist, a magazine editor and the you know, technology is sort of of magazine production has progressed to the point where it's possible for a really high quality consumer magazine to be made by a very small number of people. So I thought, well, let's. How small can that number be? You know, I mean, just just going back twenty or thirty years, you used to it used to require enormous editorial staff, sales staff, production staff, and then all these kind of pre-press people who, you know, the technical people who prepared the pages. But now, I wanted to find out how how low could I get that number, and I've I've effectively got it down to one, which is just me. So I, I produce it, I write it myself, I produce it myself, and the the only sort of external. Um, assistance I require is of a designer. I, I'm not sufficiently skilled to actually lay out the pages myself, although I can put copy into a template. So I have a designer for a couple of weeks per issue. And um, so that's, so I thought uh, when the sort of magazine industry decided it was pretty much going to sort of uh, lie down by the side of the road and wait, wait for the end, you know, it's been pretty much, uh, uh, you know, flattened by the rise of digital technology and social media and advertising has kind of left the publishing industry to the extent it's very difficult for magazines to to survive so i thought well look i don't know how to do anything else i'm going to try and do this do a magazine on my own because i feel i can um so if i'm going to do a magazine on my own what am i going to do do it about and it was going to have to be something that i know that i could devote all my time to because it does take seven days a week to uh, produce this thing i have no days off and um so it has to be something which i was genuinely interested in and and books uh reading books and writing about books and talking about books is something that i you know even having done this for kind of two two and a bit years now i still have just as much enthusiasm for as the day i started so i feel i've feel i've chosen the right subject now I don't like listening to interviews where the interviewer takes about 10 minutes to answer a question. And, and I know the listeners of the podcast are guffawing at that right now. But this kind of requires it because, yeah, I mean, you've, you've just touched on in your last answer how we're led to believe that the magazine industry particularly is dying. And, I, and you said you work seven days a week on it. In the in, in the PR that I was given about you, you are you read the equivalent of War and Peace every week. You write the equivalent of the Great Gatsby every month. So I guess very simply, like why? 
why do you do it? So many people in, in your experience, like uh, back in the day who worked on magazines as you have, may have given up the ghost and gone off and just got a regular job. Why have you? Why are you persisting with this? Why do you do it all? Well, because I feel there is a there is a business here. You know, I do it because I feel there is an opportunity to you know, the, even though the magazine industry is, is you know been sort of frightened to death by the way in which uh, uh, digital technology and social media has completely eaten its lunch. Um, there is still a lot of activity in sort of niche markets in magazines. So where, where people are really interested in specific uh, activities, um, then there's, there's quite a lot going on. You know, the magazine is still a, is still a viable format for people to get their information. And I think they like, you know, pe- people like to belong to something. They like to think they're being given something which is made or they're buying something which is made specifically for them. And uh, it, it's, you know, so there's a sense of belonging, there's a sense of usefulness, there's a sense of uh, it, it being genuinely entertaining. And uh, from my perspective, it's, uh, it's a way of making a living. Now, this is a writer's podcast called Writer's Routine. It would be remiss of me not to try and touch on on yours. I'm very curious, if you're doing this seven days a week, it's all you, it, it really is all-consuming. How do you go about planning and then putting together every month's episode? So I guess take me through a month in the life of working on Strong Words. When do you first get the ideas of what you're going to focus on in next month? When are you starting to read? When are you starting to write? Take me through that, Ed. So look, I I do nine issues a year, which is sounds like a slightly perverse number, but it's it's halfway between six and twelve, which are two which are two fairly conventional, uh, you know, magazine sort of out, outputs. But it's it's so it's about an issue every six six weeks six weeks, which is as I can't do them any quicker than that on my own. You know, it's just too much. So, um, so I kind of start pretty much with a blank sheet of paper at the beginning of six weeks, every six weeks. And I go through all the publishers catalogs, which are all available online and just get a sense of what's coming up. The magazine has a fairly, um, established format. So I know that I'm looking for, you know, so many novels, so many nonfiction books, so many interviews, so many biographies and memoirs so many graphic novels and try and fill fill the spaces with what looks most interesting and mo- and uh, make sure i've got a good uh, breadth and variety of uh, writers and from different countries and so on and uh and then just go about trying to trying to fill those spaces so um i i wake up very early in the morning i wake up at about half past five that's not quite right quarter to six and uh, I, I walk for an hour and a half and listen to audio books because uh, so I tend to stay over at my girlfriend's house during the week. So uh, I walk back to my house where I work, start at about eight o'clock in the morning, uh, read, 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 write, 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 make sure that books are coming in and uh, interviews and so on are being organised, um, do them, transcribe them. Um, and so, and then in the evening I walk back uh, to... Uh, my girlfriend's house for another half hour and a half back and listen to some more audio books. So um, it's, that, it's, you know, it, it's not that complicated, you know, it's just a great volume of work. I try and ensure that the quality is, is kept high. I try and ensure that it's kept interesting. And then in the last two weeks of the process, uh, I get the designer in and we actually lay out the pages and sub the pages and put the headlines in and uh, send it off to the printer. Now, I've got in front of me uh, issue 20, which was from July. I imagine if they're every six weeks, this is the last uh, edition that you had. Uh, what's in the new uh, edition? What's coming up in, in the future that you can tell us about? Well, there's a uh, so to, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if you're interested in, in dates on your podcast, but today I think is that we're in the last sort of last week of August. And so there's a new issue coming out this week, uh, which has uh, the secret barrister on the cover. Uh, and obviously his or her first book was um, anonymous, a gigantic success about how um, people don't so misunderstand the way the law operates in Britain. It puts them at a massive disadvantage. And this new secret barrister book is called Fake Law. And it's about the way in which people's legal rights are being so undermined by uh, government and uh, special interests that by the, were they ever to go and uh, 
you know seek legal redress they may they may well find their what they thought when their legal rights aren't there anymore so it's quite an important book and uh i'm quite pleased that we have a good interview with the secret barrister in that uh in that next issue and there's a lot of there's also a sort of big section which the secret barrister is part of which is called going it alone and so i've talked to a number of people who are the have kind of you know done their thing on their own so uh one of those people is the absolutely fabulous Raina Wynn who did The Salt Path which is another massive hit her new book uh, uh, The Wild Silence is out about um, you know she she became unexpectedly homeless and lost everything so she started out with her only possession a tent to walk the uh, southwest coast path and this is and you know reconnected with life and so this is after that and rather it being a sort of you know jubilant um return to normality it's actually quite melancholy and thoughtful and uh, thinking well what what is uh, you know it's very difficult to return to life after you've become homeless even if you've got a roof over your head it's still very difficult to trust people and uh, uh, have faith in all the things you kind of took for granted before so that's a very moving thing as well and then the, the, there's also a, a, a the first First female football writer, Julie Welch, has written about the old days on Fleet Street and breaking into this very male, beery, uh, sort of rather sexist world, which she, even though it's difficult, um, she has a great deal of nostalgia for. Thank you so much to Ed for telling us all about Strong Words. You can find out more about the mag uh, over at writersroutine.com. And thank you so much for listening. It's been a bumper episode this week. Find out everything on the website. While you're there, get in touch with the show on the contact form. Let us know any notes and queries and questions and observations and thoughts that you might have. Uh, also, you can support us over at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter. We are at Writers Pod on there too. Now, next week, we're chatting to Callum McSwiggan all about his uh, travel memoir. It's called Eat Gay Love, which is an amazing title. And it's a brilliantly funny book as well. We're chatting to Callum next week on the show. I will see you then with another writer's routine. Bye. <laughs>